You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. The Apostle Paul knew he would soon die. He was on death row, about to be executed as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was in a dungeon-like cell right off the Forum in Rome. I had the privilege with Gladine of being there one time and seeing this dungeon-like cell, a cave-like cell, a story down from the surface right off the Forum. If you and I in our imaginations could visit Paul on this day as he sat there in that dingy, dark cell, we would notice he's writing a letter. He's writing one last letter to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. What is he writing? Is he writing some warning to his son in the faith, Timothy? Is he warning Timothy, Timothy, don't follow in my steps. Don't risk what I've risked. Don't suffer what I've suffered. Oh, son, I hope you don't have to sacrifice like I've sacrificed for Christ in the gospel. Is that what he's warning Timothy of? Is he telling Timothy, steer clear, Timothy. Go find a different route in life. I hope you find a life of comfort and and happiness in this world. Is that what he's writing? You know, we actually know what he's writing because you have a copy and I have a copy of that letter. We know it in our Bibles as 2 Timothy. It's difficult for me to read the first chapter of 2 Timothy without being sober to the point of tears. When this man who was about to be executed for preaching the gospel writes one last letter to his son in the faith, he writes this. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share, share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now, for you parents or grandparents in this room, can you imagine knowing that you're about to die and you're writing one last letter? Would you call on your children? Would you call on your grandchildren? Come and suffer with me for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worth it. He is worth suffering, son. He is worth suffering for daughter. Come suffer with me for the cause of Christ. That's what Paul wrote. That's what he wrote. And a few lines down, he challenged his son in the faith with this. He said, live a life useful to the master. Live a life useful to the Master. Doesn't doesn't that sound inviting? If you're here today as a believer, doesn't that draw you in? Doesn't that make you want to lean in? What does that mean? What does that look like to live a life useful to the Master? If you're here today and you've already been gripped by God's redeeming grace, I'm confident that you don't want to waste your life, do you? You don't want to get to the end of your life and say, well, that was a waste. 
You want to live your life useful to the master, don't you? You want to know that your life counts for something, for something for eternity. But if you're a believer here today, I, I have every confidence that in your heart you're saying, oh, I want to hear that day. I want to hear those most blessed words. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Fellow believer, don't you long for that? Don't, don't you live your life hungering for that? That one day you would look into your Savior's face and He into yours. And that you would hear those most blessed words. Good and faithful servant. You'd be able to look back over however many years he's given you and you'd know I did not waste my life. That I lived a life useful to the master. How, how, how does that happen? Or if I can ask one of my favorite questions, what has to happen for that to happen? What has to happen for that to happen for me to live a life useful to the Master? We recently began a summer series here at CCC in the book of Nehemiah. So why don't you join me there, please, in Nehemiah chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 8 and going through the rest of the chapter, verse 20. And as you turn to Nehemiah 2, let me just briefly catch up for our guests and those who've been absent where we are. Nehemiah was a Jew who lived in the 400s B.C., and he lived his whole life in Persia, even though he was a Jew. He was among a rather large contingent of Jews who were living in exile. And even though he was a foreigner in the Persian Empire, being a Jew, he had a very important position. He was the personal cupbearer to the emperor, King Artaxerxes. One day, Nehemiah had some guests show up there at the palace. One was his brother and some others, and they had come from the home, the uh, city of the ancestors, the city of God, Jerusalem. When Nehemiah inquired about the welfare of the people, of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, he um, got a rather sad report from his brother and the others. The report was that the citizens of Jerusalem were living in great trouble and shame. Great trouble and shame. Those are Nehemiah's words. And so for the next four months, day and night, for the next four months, day and night, Nehemiah dedicated himself to praying and as we saw last week, one day God answered his passionate and persevering prayers. God displayed his sovereign grace, his grace over all people, over all circumstances, by moving the heart of the pagan, most powerful man in the world, Emperor Artaxerxes, to not only inquire what was on Nehemiah's heart, but then to respond favorably that Artaxerxes not only gave Nehemiah commission to go back to Jerusalem or to go to Jerusalem, but even agreed to send along supplies and security detail. Well, last week we left Nehemiah ready for that long journey. 
leaving the comforts of the palace, beginning a journey that was full of risk, risk of life, risk of reputation. As I think about Nehemiah leaving the palace, heading out on that journey in order to help the people of God in Jerusalem, I realize that in many ways Nehemiah is but an echo, in a ways a shadow of one who was to come, who would leave the palaces of heaven to come to this land, this earth, that is full of great trouble and shame in order to rescue us. We know him as Jesus. As we look at this map, if your eye is sharp, you can see over here, not far from the Persian Gulf, the winter capital of Susa. That's where Nehemiah began. And he made this long circuitous route to Jerusalem. That would be eight or 900 miles. And remember, they had no planes, no trains, no cars. They walked or rode beasts of burden. And you ask, why didn't they just take a more direct route? Well, friends, this is desert. <laughs> and they couldn't carry that much water. And so they would follow the river. They would follow the Euphrates River as far as they could. It's a little more fertile up in this region. And then they'd begin the route down south to Jerusalem. Um, Walking, even riding beasts of burden, the best guess is that that trip would take at least two months. That's a long journey. And along the way, there would be all kind of hazards, but Nehemiah was willing to risk it for the glory of God and the good of his people. As we think about this passage in Nehemiah 2, we'll read it in a moment here, section by section. I'm, I'm impressed that Nehemiah was such a man of prayer. We've seen that the last few weeks. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Last week we saw at one point he shot up an arrow prayer as King Nehemiah says, why are you so sad? <laughs> Nehemiah was scared. What do you want, Nehemiah? When the king asked him, what do you want? Nehemiah shot up this arrow prayer. We don't know what it was, but it was probably something brief, something like, Lord, help me. <laughs> Being sad in the presence of the king, asking the king to reverse an edict he had made 13 or 14 years previous was uh, risky, risky, risky. Nehemiah could have not only lost his job, he could have lost his life. But he went to the king of kings before he went to the king with his request. As I think about the, uh, those little short prayers that Nehemiah probably prayed, I thought, what kind of prayers do I pray? Sometimes my prayers are longer, but sometimes they're those arrow prayers. Aren't, don't you have some arrow prayers that you pray? You don't necessarily pre-plan them, but as you face different issues in life, you might pray, Lord, help me. Three short prayers came to my mind as I read this passage. I'll give them to you now. I'll give them to you again, and I'll give them to you at the end. But the prayers that come to my mind as I've studied this passage are these three. Lord, move me. The second one is, Lord, use me. And the third prayer is, Lord, strengthen me. Let's look at that first prayer. Lord, move me. I'm in Nehemiah chapter 2. Are you? I'm going to start reading at verse 9, and I'm going to read down through verse 16. Lord, move me. Nehemiah's memoirs here. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. So now he's made his journey. He's 
over uh, beyond the Euphrates River, the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate and inspected, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Lord, move me. Nehemiah says that when he got to Jerusalem, he spent three days there. And uh, if you're wondering, what did he do for three days? Well, I think one thing probably was just getting some rest. <laughs> After a two-month journey, he probably needed some rest. But I wouldn't be surprised if he spent some of that time just interviewing some of the leading citizens, some of the officials there in Jerusalem. I think we need to remember that Nehemiah was not a native of Jerusalem even though that's where his ancestors were from, so far as we know, he'd never been there before. And so I imagine he spent the first three days just getting rest and maybe talking to some of the local citizens, explaining that the king had sent him there, even if he had not yet given them details. But then he did a very curious thing, didn't he? It says he went out during the night. Now, that doesn't grip us that much in our culture, but remember, they didn't have electricity. <laughs> there were no streetlights. There, there were no headlights on the car. <laughs> he went out at night. I'm going to guess it was a moonlit night, although he doesn't say that. And, and he went out and began to examine the walls. We have a little map of the city here. And if, you, if you're one of those people that likes to visualize things, maybe this will help somewhat. But uh, the city of Jerusalem, this is after the walls were rebuilt, by the way. But the uh, city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was smaller than it was right before the exile. In fact, you can see up here by the artist's rendition, the model constructor, he put some houses over here. Back before this, Solomon and the succeeding kings before the exile, Jerusalem was much bigger. But this is about the size it was when David took it over in about 1000 B.C. Now it's in the 400s B.C., and it's a smaller city once again. And when Nehemiah got there, these walls were all broken down. And he, he left by a gate somewhere over in this area and began a counterclockwise journey around the city. And he even tells us in his story that he gets to this part of the city and he couldn't go any further on the horse or mule, whatever it was he was riding. He couldn't get any further because of all this rubble. Apparently he dismounted and with a few men with him went a little bit farther and looked at these retaining walls and then went back and went back into the city, the same gate he had entered. Uh, so not a big city, but still pretty good walk in the night looking at the walls. Now, this is not the main point of the passage, but let me give you a couple sidebars that uh, I think are helpful to think about, especially those of you who have responsibilities in leadership. Maybe you're a 
dad, a mother, a husband, a life group leader, pastor. You have some responsibilities of leadership. I think even looking at this, just some sidebar lessons, is that uh, leadership has a cost to it. You know, being an older leader, sometimes I have young men tell me they're, they want to be a leader, and usually those are motivated by very good reasons, but occasionally I kind of pick up that someone thinks it's going to be nice to be a leader, you know, get pats on the back, get some uh, recognition. Leadership is costly. And even here in Nehemiah, we see him losing sleep while other people are sleeping in the city. He's out doing the hard work of evaluating what are the needs here. And um, not only sacrifice of sleep, but a certain sense of aloneness. He even alludes to that. He said, I didn't even tell everybody what I was doing. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. In a leadership, sometimes you're processing before the Lord the needs, and, and you don't even have the freedom yet to share with other people, and you live with a certain sense of aloneness, like I'm not free quite yet to share these things. Leadership has some cost to it, don't they? And I think we all need to remember that, that if God gives us responsibility to impact other people, there's a cost involved, but it's worth it. But no matter what he calls us to, that we are people of prayer. Nehemiah can picture him going around those walls, not talking so much to the few people with him, but maybe talking to the Lord. And I think of Nehemiah, and I think of the prayer that I assume was on his heart, Lord, move me. Move me, Lord. Let me see what you see. When Nehemiah talks about the city being in devastation, when he talks about being in shame, I believe he's talking about more than the, the, the walls of stone. He's not merely talking about the walls themselves, the physical structures torn down. He's not merely referring to the gates that have been burned. He's talking about the people. Now, as we saw, I think it was two weeks ago, Nehemiah was very familiar with his Bible. If you study his prayers, you realize his prayers are being motivated by what he read or heard from the Word of God. That he knew that God had promised, even back in the books of Moses, that if the, even if the people sinned and God sent them away in exile, that he would bring them back. That God had a plan of redemption. He'd redeemed his people out of Egypt originally. And then even now, as he says, if you disobey me, I'm going to send you away. But I promise when you repent, I'll bring you back. Nehemiah had in his mind this framework of God's plan of redemption. And if you want to picture this with me, I picture Nehemiah going around those broken down walls, looking at the city in devastation, looking at the city in a state of, of shame, the people themselves, the people of God. And he has this paradigm that he's looking through, this paradigm of God's plan of redemption, that God's glory would be seen in his people and overlaid that with what he actually sees in the city of Jerusalem. And it doesn't match very well. You know, here's God's plan of redemption. I look at where the people are and I see they're far from that. There's, Lord, there are so many needs. Lord, we don't see everyone following you. We don't see everyone glorying in you. We see devastation and shame. And similarly for us, as we pray, Lord, move me. Lord, move me. It is so important that we know His plan, that we study His book, the Bible, and we see that He has a plan <coughs> to redeem people from every language group, from every tribe, every nation. God has a plan of redemption, that He wants to crowd around the throne of His Son on that day to be large and loud. I love to begin in my thinking with Revelation 5. 
And I think that's the goal. That's where we're headed. Revelation 5, when John says, I saw a, a crowd so large you couldn't number it. People around the throne of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, crying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And we, we know that's the ideal. That's where we're headed. And so we have this paradigm that we're looking at. Here's the plan of redemption God has. And then we superimpose on that what we see currently with our eyes. And we say, oh, but Lord, there are so many people who have not yet been reached. Lord, there are people in my neighborhood. There are people in my family. There are people in our church, Lord, in our, in our gatherings that are not yet following your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, move me. Move me that, that I see your glorious destination for us and I see where we are. And Lord, I want to see us move toward that, Lord. Move me. Move me. And we ask him to break our hearts. We ask him to show us the needs. That we not live in self-centered oblivion. That we don't live with the distractions of this world when we don't see what he sees. But we want to see what he sees. We want his goal, his desires to be our goals, our desires. We want his passion for his people to be our passion for his people. And so, as Nehemiah must have prayed, we pray, Lord, move me. God did move him. Did you notice verse 12? There, there's a sentence in verse 12 that's very notable. He says, what? Let me just read part of it. He said, what my God had put into my heart to do for the people of Jerusalem. He acknowledges that it was the sovereign God himself who put into his heart to do something, to do something for the people of Jerusalem. So he prayed for four months. And God says, Nehemiah, I want to use you. Other people too, but I want to use you, Nehemiah. God put it into his heart. So what do you assume that second prayer is? God, move me. The second prayer? Prayer for action. God, use me. He called the people together. Look at verses 17 and 18. Just two verses next. Nehemiah 2, verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, people of Jerusalem, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah called the people together and he was honest about the problem. You know, I think about this. This is another one of those sidebar lessons. He was new to the situation. Nehemiah had just gotten there. I mean, he'd just been there a few days. But he already saw, after a few days, what some of the people had become blind to. And that is a problem we face sometimes, isn't it? Let me address those of us who are a bit older. We, we can get so used to the status quo that we almost uh, need to humble ourselves and benefit from someone who has fresher eyes. And someone who has fresher eyes saying, whoa, we've got a lot of work to do here. <laughs> you know, we can get used to the status quo. And I think some of the citizens of Jerusalem had gotten used to the status quo. That's just the way things are. And yet Nehemiah, with his fresh eyes, he saw the problems and he wasn't afraid to call them out. And I think if we're praying, Lord, move me, that he's going to show us. He's going to show us things that need to be done. 
If you are honestly praying that, and before you leave today, I'm going to make a very clear call for you to pray that this week. If you pray, Lord, move me, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If he puts a particular person on your heart, or a particular family on your heart, or a particular ministry on your heart, if he puts something or someone on your heart that you can't get out of your mind, that he's going to say, okay, you were serious, move me, okay, I'll... I'll give, I'll give you a burden for someone. I'll give you a burden for that ministry, those people. But then when he does, to be ready to pray, Lord, use me. Use me. I appreciate Nehemiah's perspective. Did you notice the pronouns he used in verse 17? Did you notice the pronouns? He said, we, us, we, you know, sometimes when we're new to a situation, we come into a context where there's problems, there's things to be done that aren't done. It's so easy to say, what's wrong with you people? What's, what's wrong with you people? Don't you see what needs to be done? Why aren't you doing something about that? But Nehemiah, I think, was so gripped by God's grace personally that he didn't do that. He wasn't a finger pointer saying, what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you doing anything? You know, lazy people. You know, he, he says, we, we have this problem. He includes him, himself as part of the problem. Friends, if God puts a burden on your heart and you're serious about praying, Lord, move me, and he puts someone on your heart or some ministry on your heart, even in the near future, don't be surprised if he wants to use you as part of the solution. Instead of sitting back and saying, why doesn't someone do something about that need over there? Why isn't anyone helping that family? Why isn't anyone coming alongside that hurting person? Why, why isn't my church doing this? Why isn't my church? Friends, we are the church. We are the church. And so if God puts someone on your heart or a certain ministry on your heart, don't be surprised if he wants you to be part of the solution. You say, Lord. How would you use me? How would you use me? Nehemiah never minimized the problem, did he? I, I find this chapter fascinating. As he goes out and does his nighttime assessment, the next morning he gathers the people together and he says, you, you, see, you see the problem that we're in. <laughs> he, he's honest. He never minimizes the problem. And again, he's not just talking about stones and gates talking about the people of God. He's talking about the people of God and the poor condition that they're in. This is important because if Jerusalem were not restored, then how would the promise to King David years before be fulfilled? Where God told King David that he would have a descendant someday, a descendant unlike any other descendant, the one who would be the Messiah, the anointed one. That the anointed one, the Messiah, was to be here and would be here. 400 years later, the Messiah would come and have a significant part of his ministry here in this part of the world and one day would die right outside these same walls. He would die one day right out those walls on a cross, be buried and rise again right there in Jerusalem. Do you see what Nehemiah is doing here? He's not minimizing the problem, but what is he doing? He's not minimizing the problem, but he is maximizing God's grace. 
And it's so important that we see that. He's maximizing God's grace. Nehemiah says, I told the people, I told the people about the hand of God upon me for good. Now, some of you have heard me say this before, and some of you are going to hear it for the first time, but it's a grammar lesson. The imperatives always stand on the indicatives. Can I hear an amen? Why are you amening that? Okay. <laughs> Why do the imperatives stand on the indicatives? What would be an indicative, even from this passage? What would be an indicative? God has been good. The hand of God for good upon us. Here's an indicative that God is a good and gracious God. He's a good and gracious God. That's an indicative. A statement of fact. God is a good and gracious God. He's a sovereignly gracious God. And now there's an imperative, a command. Let's rebuild. And I think so often in the Christian life, we bifurcate, we divorce the imperatives and the indicatives, and it gets so discouraging. Now, if I were to read to you part of a well-known verse in the Bible, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I just quoted that part. Um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, you might, you might at first say, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll I'll present my body as a living sacrifice. God, all that I am is yours. I, I present myself as a living sacrifice. And you know what? You might even be determined, to live that, be determined to live that way for a while. But then hardship comes and, and discouragement comes and opposition. And what keeps you going? What keeps you presenting your body as a living sacrifice? You say, I gave you the imperative, but I didn't give you the indicative, did I? What's the indicative before the imperative? In view of the mercies of God, that's a quote from Romans 12. Thank you, brother. Paul says, in view of the mercies, plural, the mercies of God, I urge you, brothers, in view of his mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the apostle Paul in Romans 12 and in many other places gives us the indicatives of God's grace. This is what God is like. He's, he's got mercies beyond mercies. Now, keep in mind, in view of his mercy, say, oh, look at what a great God he is. Look at what a gracious, good God he is. Oh, good he has been to me. Now present your body as a living sacrifice. Glad to. That seems reasonable to me. That's your reasonable act of service in view of his mercy. And here, Nehemiah says, I, he, he didn't minimize the problems, did he? You see the problems we're in. But then he told them, good hand of God was upon me. The hand of God was upon me for good. And how did the people respond? You saw it in your Bible. How did the people respond? Let's rise up and build. <laughs> My friends, this is another miracle. Did you see it? That's another miracle. You say, oh, the heart of King Artaxerxes was turned. This, this pagan king who 14 years had told the people, stop rebuilding. It's now saying, okay, Nehemiah, I'll send you back to rebuild. And what, what do you need? Need some wood? I'll, I'll, I'll give you letters of uh, acquisition there. I'll give you safe passage letters. What do you need, Nehemiah? And you say, that's a miracle that he would turn the heart of the emperor, King Artaxerxes. But right here in this passage, we see another miracle. You know, for 14 years, people of Jerusalem probably said to one another, we should probably do something about those walls, but what's the point? It's not going to work anyway. We'll just get in trouble. We got in trouble the last time we tried. Someone is just going to stop us. There's no point in it. There's no point in it. And they had this defeatist attitude. What's the use? But now God sends his commissioned messenger, Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah says, I told them about the hand of God upon me for good. And the people responded to that and says, let's do it. Let's rebuild the walls. And it says their hands were strengthened. They were ready to get to the work. They were going to solve the problems. And again, Nehemiah included himself. He wasn't saying, you guys are going to have to do all the work. He included himself. You know, a couple of pastoral comments here. Pastor Mark and Pastor Rod and I were talking about this passage this past week for a little while. and I'm going to speak very freely here, and I know I'm being recorded. But, um, you know, I think especially for those in the church that have been here for a long time, we look over our shoulder and we say, boy, our church used to be bigger than it is now. Our staff used to be bigger than it is now. Our giving used to be more than it is now. And we can look at that and we can feel like, what's the use? You know, we don't have the resources. We don't have the people we used to have. And we can have this defeatist attitude. But as we were talking in our pastor's meeting this past week, we are talking about the good hand of God upon us. And my friends, we need, we need to see God as a good and gracious God because of Jesus Christ. Remember last week we talked about this for a while? God... God the Father is not sitting on his throne, arms crossed, leaning back with a frown in his face, like, why in the world are you coming to me? But because of Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf, our Heavenly Father, figuratively speaking, is leaning forward on his throne with his arms open and a smile on his face. And he's saying, you are my redeemed people. I sacrificed my son to make you my people. He's for us, friends. He is for us because of Jesus Christ. And with that indicative, with that indicative of God being good and gracious, we hear the imperative, rise up and build. And we say, yes, Lord. What do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? Our church has a mission. Our church has been called by God to make disciples of his son. And you know what? He is a good and gracious God. His hand is upon us. And we should find ourselves with our hands strengthened. And we say, Lord, use me. Lord, use us. There's one more prayer. Let me read verses 19 and 20 with you. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And the third prayer, friends, is, Lord, strengthen me. Or if you want to pluralize it, Lord, strengthen us. Sometimes we think when we meet opposition, sometimes when we meet hardship, we think, I must be doing the wrong thing. I mean, if I were doing the right thing, this wouldn't be hard, right? If I were doing the right thing, then I wouldn't be meeting opposition, would I? Friends, many times when God calls us to do something, we do face opposition. We do face hardship. The fact that we're facing hardship and opposition is not an indicator that we're going down the wrong path. Nehemiah was doing exactly what God called him to do, and he met opposition. We saw that in verses 9 and 10, didn't we? I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't even to Jerusalem yet. He was still on that southern-oriented part of his journey when he ran into these guys, Sanballat and uh, 
this other guy, the Ammonite, Tobiah. These guys were already opposing him even before he got to the city. And now they're jeering him, mocking him, accusing him, accusing them. You're in rebellion against the emperor. When he finds out you guys are building this walls, you know what he's going to do? He's going to do what he did 14 years ago. Only now Nehemiah knew, no, he won't. Because our God has commissioned us and even moved the heart of the king. You know, they were mocking and jeering, and yet Nehemiah didn't mock or jeer back, did he? There was no need to. And let me just encourage us in this era of social media that we Christians don't give in to the world's message. The world mocks and jeers. We have no reason to mock and jeer, friends. We're children of the high king of heaven. You know, Peter made a point in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when Jesus was uh, slandered, he didn't slander back. He, he didn't need to. It says that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That Jesus in his earthly ministry, when people mocked him and accused him of all kind of horrible things that were not true, he didn't fight back and mock and jeer and try to put other people down. But he went to his heavenly father and he said, Father, I know you love me. I know you're the sovereign. I know you'll deal with this in your way and in your timing. I entrust myself to you. Jesus was a man of faith, even in his earthly ministry. And you and I need to remember that we serve the good God of heaven who loves us and cares for us. And we, like Jesus, can entrust ourselves to him. And we don't need to mock or jeer. Nehemiah demonstrated a strong faith in the sovereign God. He said, we're his. And he said to the people who were mocking and jeering, you have no claim on Jerusalem. Now, if you go back and study the book of Deuteronomy, You'll find out that uh, the Ammonites, the Moabites, were not allowed into the assembly of God's people because of their opposition to Moses and the people when they left Egypt. God decreed that those people had no claim on Jerusalem. Again, Nehemiah knew his Bible. By the way, I didn't put up a map of this, but if you look at a map, um, they were surrounded. <laughs> if you include Salab... Sanballat, the Horonite, that would be kind of north and, and west. And Tobias, the Ammonite, that would be kind of north and east. Gershom, the Arab, that would be south and southeast. Mediterranean's over here. They, they were surrounded. But Nehemiah's not panicking. He says, we're God's people. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to restore his people. And he says, you have no claim. And when I think about that, I think about our accuser. Our accuser, Satan, can come and he can, he can try to draw us back into our old B.C. way of thinking, our old B.C. way of life. And, he's, and he tries to tempt us and discourage us and divide us. And we can say to him, similar to what Nehemiah said to his opposers in that day, and we can say, Satan, accuser, devil, you have no claim on us. God, by His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, has transferred us. He's transferred us from your old kingdom of darkness. And He's put us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You have no claim on us, Satan. We've been bought with a price. And friends, when Satan tempts us to despair, He tells us of the guilt within. Upward we look and we see Him. No claim on you as an individual Christian, and he has no claim on us as a church. 
so whenever there's a temptation to despair, to divide, to be distracted, we say to him, away from us, no, we are not of you. We've been bought with a price. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us with the resolve of the gospel and your son, Jesus Christ. Fellow Christian, would you like to live a life useful to the master? Do you, do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to count for life in eternity? Well, let me encourage you to pray these three short prayers. If you look in your bulletin, some of you have a bulletin with you. Maybe one person in your family got one. You'll notice this: the prayer points, we put it in there every week, prayer points. We intentionally put into the prayer points this week for our church these three prayers. I don't mind hearing some tearing sounds right now. So if you want to tear that right now, ready? You take that and use it as a bookmark in your Bible this week. And when you're reading your Bible in the morning or the evening or mealtimes, whenever you sit and read your Bible, you have this as your bookmark this week. And I want to ask you as a friend and as one of your pastors to pray these three prayers each day this week. And maybe even as you go through your day. I was challenged personally with this. I was mowing the lawn last night. Thoughts while mowing, right? And using that mowing time to pray these three prayers. Lord, move me. Lord, use me. Lord, strengthen me. And if you're a believer here today, and many of you are, I want to ask you, would you commit to praying those three prayers every day this week? When you do it, doesn't matter to me. But during your day, sometime, you're praying these three prayers. Lord, move me. Lord, use me. Lord, strengthen me. And then you watch what he does. That first prayer might, the Lord might open your eyes to some things you haven't seen before. Maybe he'll bring a person onto your heart. You say, that person could use some encouragement or that person needs the gospel. Maybe someone at work, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family. It could be you'd put something on your heart, a ministry that you're burdened with. Maybe you know of a ministry already in existence here at CCC that needs help. And you say, boy, I've been sitting on the sidelines. Maybe the Lord wants me to get involved in that ministry. Or maybe he's put a ministry on your heart that's new, fresh. And you say, Lord, could you use me? to serve in that way. Or maybe it's mission field oriented and you say, you know what, I've been rather conservative in my giving. I think the Lord wants me to be a bit more extravagant. And he's calling you to give more so that the gospel message can be spread more broadly. I don't know how he's going to answer it. And quite frankly, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to mess with him. But if you're serious about praying that, see what happens when you say, Lord, move me. And then when you're moved, don't neglect that second prayer. Lord, use me. And then when you find it difficult, when you find it challenging, that you don't forget to pray, Lord, strengthen me. 